Namaste and good evening to all of you. I would like to continue tonight with some of the ideas as promised when talking about the concept of yugas, of cosmic cycles. Last week I made a presentation of the general Indian and Oriental concept of the fact that history runs in cycles exactly like the seasons of a year that the history repeats itself cyclically. And uh, it's very thrilling to see it in the big cycles of 25,800 years or so, which are called yugas, and they are divided, that's actually a maha-yuga, and they are divided in the four quarters, the spring, the summer, the autumn, and the winter of mankind the so-called Golden Age, Silver Age, Bronze Age, and Iron Age. And last week, I said quite a few words about this theory of the Yugas, how they were supposed to be related with the Hyperborean culture or Atlantean culture, how the Hindu scriptures tell us that the characteristics of the human beings have changed, both physically and spiritually that this theory of yugas has something cataclysmic to it, that whenever a yuga is over and a new yuga has to start, usually there is no way for Mother Nature to create that transition in a soft way, and usually the transition has something brutal in it. But also there exists a positive, optimistic aspect, because in the end of every yuga, the energy has entropically become stale, rotten, like 6,000 years ago the energy was starting fresh, and then human beings with their entropy, with their lack of spirit, with their material aspects, they managed to make it decay, so that towards the end of a yuga, towards the end of a cosmic cycle, the energy always gets old, stale, rotten, and always when we are waiting for the starting of a new yuga, although there may be some bumps on the road there, at the same time we have a positive optimistic aspect because we are waiting for the light in the end of the tunnel, for a new beginning. And I did not speak at that time too much about the spiritual aspects. I did not clarify. Yeah, it was implicit in what I said that um, spiritually... There is a sort of a subtle law about which souls are manifested in each yuga. And that, for example, in Kali Yuga, we always look at humanity. And uh, we even have this saying, which is a saying which comes from, adulter from an adulterated culture. Like the saying is not entirely true spiritually, but it shows the exact distortion. The saying is coming from the Roman democracy, so-called, in which they said vox populi, vox dei. Like if you've got a million people and all of them want to eat shit or to smoke dope, the vox populi is vox dei. Like if the majority of people decides that booze is okay, then it must be okay. That's what the gods say or think. That's completely untrue. The gods don't think or say anything like that. And therefore, this dictum, 
that Vox Populi is Vox Dei, the voice of the people is the voice of the gods, is just an illustration perfectly of Kali Yuga, where numbers matter more than quality. It is as René Guénon, the great French metaphysician, has put it in one of his books, which he called in French, the rule of quantity. Like we are in an age where it's not quality that matters, it's quantity that matters. The numbers take over. As, for example, in in illustration, in the principle of democracy, but not only, in many others. In the principle of spirituality, you have one spiritual man like Jesus, or one spiritual man like Buddha, and you have a million ignorance around Jesus or around Buddha, who are asking Jesus or Buddha, what shall we do? How shall we live our lives? According to the principle of quantity, it is a million idiots who vote and tell to Jesus or to Buddha what's going to happen in the society. And therefore, that's exactly this lack of refinement because people will legitimately ask, and how do you know if somebody is Buddha or Jesus because there are so many crooks and weirdos around and this new age subculture shows it so much. And therefore, um, many people would say, we admit it's the, we live in the reign of quantity, but it's very difficult to evaluate things according to the reign of quality. That one quality stands above a lot of quantity. It's not the quantity that matters. Ultimately, it's the quality. And thus... Remember that each yuga is characterized by the birth of its own spirits. Kali Yuga was characterized as an Indian guru called it, starting from a saying of Ramakrishna, they called it the pygmies of Kali Yuga, like small spirits as opposite to the Mahatmas, to the great spirit. And that automatically tells us that the spirits which are born in Kali Yuga are not the same with the spirits which are born in Satya Yuga or in the Silver Age of Humanity, which shows that there exists a very complex divine plan. There is a law of resonance. There is a way in which spirits are born for a while, then not born, exactly as yoga classes are between certain hours in a yoga hall, and then after another time, there is another group, totally different, and it's not the same people participating to different of these. But exactly as we can have very advanced pupils who can participate to a beginner class and to a more advanced class in the same yoga hall, like doing two yoga classes one after another, in the same way it is also obvious that the high spirits can sometimes be born in the lower yugas with various purposes. There are a hundred purposes concerning that. I would like, as an illustration of this, because all I have said is quoted from so many sources, I would like to just quote for you the promised paragraph from the Mahanirvana Tantra, one of the very classical tantric texts of India, This will give me the opportunity to do a meditation with you, not a meditation-meditation, but more like a verbal meditation, musing more, 
like thinking a little bit about how things have changed and which are some of the pathways of evolution. This paragraph from uh, Mahanirvana Tantra is a question which Parvati herself, the Shakti, the feminine aspect, she's asking of Shiva. She's telling to Shiva, I can see the history, the human history on this planet is going like this and like this and like this and like this. And she will start by reminding some of the things and then she will describe the pernicious nature, the real rotten nature of Kali Yuga. And then, of course, she's asking Shiva what to do. Like, given the fact that history goes like this, what is your latest update? It is a very, very healthy Hindu concept that spirituality needs to be updated. Like, every 1,000 years, every 2,000 years, every 3,000 years... People change so much, like the spirit which incarnate in Kali Yuga becomes so low that they are not going to understand the teaching which was given to people 3,000 years before or 2,000 years before. And because of this, even yoga, even the methodology has to be upgraded, updated. For example, all of you at this time of history, you are practicing here in Agama Yoga, and our yoga appropriately starts with Hatha Yoga. Because without Hatha Yoga, to have you, for example, look into, feel the chakras, feel the channels of energy, the nadis, feel the different resonances, it would be very difficult. We see across the planet Earth, people who are falling into this sometimes ridiculous New Age subculture, where people without doing appropriate asanas, mudras, bandhas, pranayama, and very clear yoga techniques, they pretend that now they want to close their eyes and feel the white light pouring on earth, or some chakra arousing, and everybody can see what a salad results from it, that people speculate that the heart chakra is green in color, and all sorts of other absurdities, which are, uh, you know, that the third chakra is actually placed in the hollow of the stomach or the medical solar plexus, and all sorts of absurdities, which are mutilations of the tradition, and which, therefore, we know that these are coming, especially because approaching yoga and spirituality in amateurish ways in ways in which do not build a proper awareness of energy, chakras, channels, and things like that. So, as I was saying a minute before, you are appropriately, we think, here in Agama, you are starting your spiritual travel by first putting your body in some positions of the body where it's very easy to feel Manipura Chakra or Anahata Chakra or Ajna Chakra or something like that. And then automatically this will slowly, slowly open the door for you of the deeper levels of yoga, of the internal forms of yoga, and so on and so forth. But the, I say this, I make this obvious statement, because perhaps most of you don't know that 15 centuries ago, 20 centuries ago, 25 centuries ago, Hatha Yoga almost did not exist. So if you ask yourself, spiritual practitioners of India, which knew about yoga because yoga is older than 3,000 years, as archaeology and scholarship has abundantly demonstrated it. So people who lived in India 3,000 years ago 
and they said that they, they claimed that they did yoga. And honestly, they did. But they were not doing Tadasana and Padahastasana and Shirshasana and the Lotus Pose and Udhyana Bandhas. And then what did they do? And how comes that it worked for them? It worked for them to do yoga in those conditions. But today, the most of the yoga lineages, even when you go into Kriya Yoga, even when you go into Tibetan Dzogchen or others, people are using a lot of physicalities to get you started. You do Hatha Yoga for a few years, you do Kundalini Yoga for a few years, and then you already reach to a level where you like jumped from a springboard and then you can do deeper things easily and without believing that the heart chakra is green or without believing that Manipura chakra is in the medical solar plexus. Therefore, yoga has been updated. Approximately 15 centuries ago when Matsyendra and Goraksha took over Hatha Yoga and Laya Yoga and Kundalini Yoga and so on, Yoga underwent a revolution, which most of you take for granted, like you think that that's how yoga is. But it wasn't like this 3,000 years ago. Why? Because the history was different, because the time was different, and because the people were different. The spiritual background was different, the spiritual receptivity of people was different, the moral and ethical pollution or purity was different. A lot of things were different in those days, and therefore even yoga and spiritual practice was different. When we look in a history like Hindus preserve that memory, and here are some of the questions as addressed by Parvati to Shiva. First, she makes a description. Of course, Shakti talks to Shiva so that you and I can hear the dialogue between Shiva and Shakti. is not because Shakti doesn't know. It's because Shakti is provoking the divine consciousness. Speak so it can be put on paper and humanity can benefit from it. And thus, it's a pro forma dialogue. It's an oblique dialogue which is destined for you and I. It's not destined really for Shakti. Shakti is compassionate for humanity. And she has to say things such as this. Thus, in former ages, in thy mercy, did through Brahma reveal the four Vedas, which are propagators of all Dharma and which ordain the rules of life for all the varying castes of men and for the different stages of their lives. So, She starts by saying the beginning were the four Vedas. The Vedic tradition which appeared in Satya Yuga, as ridiculous and outdated as it sounds today, this Vedic tradition was the first pillar in Satya Yuga. In the first age, as she calls it here, she says, man by the practice of Yagya, and pre- the, the yaga and yagya, the different forms of sacrifice as in the Vedic way, as prescribed by thee, were virtues and pleasing to devas and pitris. Pleasing to the gods because people were making sacrifices. We forget constantly that we live in a world and some people think it's only us who exist and those are the materialists. And then... There are people who are religious and who simplified religion to the point where they look, the universe look like a banana republic. There is just a universal dictator 
which is up on top of the pyramid, and all the rest of us, we are peons and peasants on the bottom of that pyramid. But of course, the cosmic order of the universe shows that above human beings, in the invisible worlds, there are many classes of spirits, and those are between us and the one tip of the pyramid and God. And therefore, human beings don't just have to be just by themselves, that's the modern theory of humanism, which is nothing else but disguised Luciferianism. Pay attention to this, because humanism is one of the big United Nations keynotes, typical to Kali Yuga, in which people are cheated with the Jean-Paul Sartre type of statement that I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the devil, I believe in the human being, I'm a humanist, that's called humanism. It has been shown repeatedly by metaphysicians that humanism is equivalent to Luciferianism. This was not proved by fundamentalistic Christians or some fanatic Talibans or something. It was proven academically and metaphysically without any doubt by people like René Guénon, Julius Evola, Ananda K. Kumaraswamy and some of the great metaphysicians of the 20th century. That's why the human beings are not living just for themselves horizontally. And if in extremis you say, but I'm a religious person, so it's, it's, it's us, the sheep, and then there is the big brother up there. That's all. That's an oversimplification, which does not illustrate the proper way of functioning of the universe. We live in a universe where, as the Vedic tradition says, they are truly devas. And those devas have a function, and we forgot them, and we don't give anything to them, we don't cooperate with them. And then we are asking, no, why is this happening? Why is that happening? Why are bad things occurring? And it never occurs to us that actually there are forces in the universe that control the different factors of nature, for example, forces of nature, and that we could deal with them in a creative way. No, And therefore... That's why here Parvati is right when she says that they were, that these people were pleasing to the Devas and the Pitris. The Pitris are the ancestors. As we demonstrate beautifully in our workshops on the art of dying, it's a tragedy what's happening that people are not communicating with the ancestors. Somebody dies and you don't help them to die properly because you don't know how, you don't help them to go through the bardo properly because you don't even know that the bardo exists, you don't help them for the first seven years in the astral world because you presume that they are nowhere, they have died, disappeared, they are annihilated, or it doesn't matter, whatever you do won't make any difference and it doesn't matter. And in this way we are at odds even with our own ancestors. Our own ancestors, even if they themselves were ignorant, in the moment when they crossed the threshold of death, then they realized that we from here could do a lot of, for them there. <coughs> but for ignorance, of course, most of the time, <coughs> not because of ill will, we actually don't do it. So we are not pleasing the ancestors. And then the ancestors who are not angels... The ancestors, you know, all of you can think about your ancestors. Your ancestors, the ones that have passed away already, they were not angels, they were just human beings. <coughs> Each one of them had an agenda, 
Each one of them had an ego. Some of them had a big, ugly ego. And then they passed away. And then you gave them the finger. Because you don't know anything better than that. And then your ancestors who are gone and who are not angels and compassionate, they are angry. Not only that they are not pleased, they are angry. So you have a bunch of angry spirits hovering around who are simply angry. No, in a selfish way, of course, but still angry. Then on top of them, we have the higher spirits like the devas. We are not pleasing to the devas. Try to think, who of you has been pleasing any devas in the last one year? Take the last one year. How much did you please any deva? One single deva, Surya Deva. How much did you please Surya Deva by at least doing some salutations to Surya Deva? No? Like, how much do we interact with the devas? We don't. We don't please the devas. We don't please the ancestors. Therefore, we live in a very alienated type of society. Parvati says, those people in Satya Yuga, because they are virtuous, they are pleasing to the devas and to the pitris, because they are doing the right things, they are doing the right procedures, the Vedic things and so on. By the study of the Vedas, dhyana, meditation, and tapas, and the conquest of the senses, by acts of mercy and charity, man were of exceeding power and courage, strength and vigor, adherents of the true Dharma, wise and truthful, and of firm resolve, and mortals though they were, they were yet like devas, like deities, like gods, and went to the abode of the devas when they died, of course. So, see, it says, because of study of the Vedas, that would be Svadhyaya from yoga, because of dhyana, practicing meditation, because of tapas, because of the conquest of the senses, like not being the slave of your senses, but the master of your senses. Because of this, and because of acts of mercy and charity, dana, the giving. Also, because of all these, people were exceedingly powerful and brave, strong and vigorous, adherents of the true dharma, wise and truthful and of firm resolve. You can ask today, Why so many people are so fucked up? Why so many children are born autistic directly from birth and so many others disturbed and we are witnessing a generation of mayhem coming up because of not having dhyana, not having tapas, because of not doing charity, because of not conquering the senses, That's the opinion of the Mahanirvana Tantra, that by practicing these virtues, you create a healthy world. And if you are like this, and if you teach your children like this, they are going to be strong, brave, wise, balanced, pure. This is how you generate a good world, by creating the proper circles of nature, the proper circuits of nature. Kings then, continues Parvati, kings then were faithful to their engagements, which of course wants to say today they are not. Today most kings who survived in the 21st century or the 20th century are total traitors to the ideal of being a king. Try to 
look at what a king was supposed to be at the time of King Arthur and the conception of royalty in the Western world, and you are going to see that a king was a person who sacrificed himself for the society. A king was a person who was, in a way, carrying a cross for all the rest of the society, and he had to forfeit many freedoms and many things just because he had to be of service. That, of course, is not happening so often. And no, at least here we live in a country where the king is very old and old-fashioned and people are worshipping this king. I, when I, I come from Romania and when the birthday of the dictator Nicolae Ceausescu was happening, they brought with chains almost a million people to howl and scream like they were very enthusiastic that it was the birthday of Ceausescu. And everybody knew that they were like slaves brought with a whip to just look good for the cameras, for the propaganda, for the television. When the birthday of this king is happening, five million people and more go in Bangkok, in the royal palace, and nobody brings them with a whip. They are not, there is no conscription of any kind. People simply come because they love their king. Because this is a king who is faithful to his promises. It's a king who stood for what he thought was right for his people. So kings then were faithful to their engagements and were ever concerned with the protection of their people, upon whose wives they were wont to look as if upon their mothers, and whose children they regarded as their very own children. The people too did then look upon a neighbor's property as if it were mere lumps of clay, like with Astea with detachment from other people's goods, like not envying the gods of people that have what you don't have. And with devotion to their dharma, they kept to the path of righteousness. There were then, says Mahanirvana Tantra, describing such a utopian world, there were then no liars, none who were selfish, thievish, malicious, foolish, None who were evil-minded, envious, wrathful, gluttonous, or lustful, but all were good of heart and of ever blissful mind. Land they yielded in plenty, then yielded in plenty all kinds of grain, clouds showered seasonable rains, cows gave abundant milk, and trees were weighed with fruits. No untimely death there was, nor famine, nor sickness. We ask ourselves, why do people die of cancer? Why there are natural cataclysms? Why there is drought and sickness? And this Mahanirvana Tantra seems to imply that it's because people were behaving right. That's what Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the founder of the Transcendental Meditation said. He said if 2% of the world population would do mantra meditation every day for 40 minutes, the all a lot of natural cataclysms and things like this could be avoided because we would simply burn the karma of all these negative things. Two percent of the people. Two percent can matter for the rest. But even two percent of the people don't do meditation every day. We sometimes wonder if in a yoga school, which is really concentrated spiritual environment, two percent of you are doing 40 minutes of meditation every day. No, this is how far it goes in the Kali Yuga. 
No? Like who is doing what? Karma yoga. All sorts of other things. Who is practicing really? And thus, remember that the Mahanirvana Tantra says that the nature is friendly when people are harmonious. No? We see civilizations in which there are typhoons and earthquakes and fires and cataclysms. And like you know, many countries subjected to those. And then we ask ourselves, how harmonious are the people in that part of the world? No untimely death. Like people could live their full lives and derive experience. Because life is made for learning, for evolving. And if you die young, you don't have much time to accumulate the experience which life, on the contrary, a long life lived in wisdom is bringing you a lot of understanding of what's happening. Men were ever cheerful, prosperous and healthy and endowed with all qualities of beauty and brilliance. Women were chaste and devoted to their husbands. Brahmanas, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas and Shudras kept to and followed the customs, Dharma, Yagya and their respective castes and all attained the final liberation. Like the theory of the Veda is that it doesn't matter to which caste you belong, if you do the right thing, if you follow your Dharma, you can attain liberation. Everybody has a path to liberation. After the Krita age had passed away, you did in the Treta age, the Treta Yuga, the Silver Age, perceive Dharma to be in disorder and that men were no longer able by Vedic rites to accomplish their desires. For men, through their anxiety and perplexity, were unable to perform these rites in which much trouble had to be overcome and for which much preparation had to be made. In constant distress of mind, they were like people who say, I don't have time to do this, I'm too busy. I have to go and watch my Facebook, what's happening on my Facebook. And we are so agitated and distracted that we don't manage to do a lot of things. In the morning we plan that we are going to do a lot of good things. And in the evening when we look to see what has been fulfilled, we haven't done half of the things which we wanted to do. Because meanwhile we got distracted by all these things. So exactly like this Parvati, hundreds, thousands of years ago when this text was written, she complained that even in the older days people started having this disease of the mind. In constant distress of mind they were neither able to perform nor yet were willing to abandon the rites. Having observed this, you did make known on earth the scripture in form of the Smriti, which explains the meaning of the Vedas. And thus, like a new updating came in the Silver Age. In the Gold Age, people were practicing pure Veda. And for their minds, for their level of consciousness, when they closed their eyes, they would gen generate states of Samadhi. It was enough. The Vedas, if you would be in a state of Samadhi, and somebody would read to you the Vedas, you'd understand amazing things. Because from Samadhi, the Vedas are something completely else than what they look like being when you read them with a newspaper type of mind. The Vedas are not newspapers. The Vedas are conceived in a very special state of mind. And therefore, 
Parvati says, you, Shiva, God, you had this grace that you realized that people are confused, and then you generated the Smriti, the second part, the Puranas, other parts of the tradition, which made it more easy for people to re-understand and to reconnect with their spiritual source. And thus delivered them from sin, which is the cause of all pain, sorrow and sickness, man too feeble for the practice of tapas and the study of the Vedas. For man in this terrible ocean of the world, who is there but you to be their cherisher, protector, savior, their fatherly benefactor and Lord? So remember what was said between the lines. Because Buddha, many centuries later, he wondered to find out what is the cause of pain and how to find the source of coming out of pain. Mahanirvana Tantra has a very strong opinion on this. Mahanirvana Tantra simply says, from sin, which is the cause of all pain, sorrow and sickness. Next time when you are in pain, sorrow and sickness, try to think first of all at the little straw in your eye. Like, what is my sin? Maybe sin is a very Christian word and you hate it. But if you would use another, you know, error, disharmony, not attuning with something, like what is my disharmony, that I am in pain, I am in sorrow, I am in sickness, and all that. Then, she continues, in the Dvapara age, that's the Bronze Age, the third stage of the process, when men abandoned the good works prescribed in the Smritis, so again, people went even lower and they couldn't even connect with those things, which sounded too abstract, too theoretical, and were deprived of one half of Dharma, like it's 50%, two ages have gone, and two ages are left, so it's like 50-50, it's less than 50, Dharma, and were afflicted by ills of mind and body, they were yet again saved by you, through the instructions of the Sanghita and other religious lore. Different Indian traditions, they call these spiritual texts, and they say the spiritual texts have changed. With every age, they have changed. So, a new family of spiritual texts came, Upanishads and so other, the Sanghitas, as they are called here. And then Parvati concludes by coming to the painful part and saying, now... The sinful Kali age is upon them, where Dharma is destroyed. Not totally, but almost, like standing on one leg, it's not really standing. And an age full of evil customs and deceit. Men pursue evil ways. The Vedas have lost their powers, the Smritis are forgotten, and many of the Puranas which contain stories of the past and show the many ways which lead to liberation will, O Lord, be destroyed. Man will become averse from religious rites, which is happening, as you can see, of different kinds. Many people, they are not neutral, they are averse. Without restraint, maddened with pride, ever given over to sinful acts, lustful, gluttonous, cruel, heartless, harsh of speech, deceitful, short-lived, poverty-stricken, harassed by sickness and sorrow, ugly, feeble, low, stupid, mean, and addicted to mean habits, companions of the bays, thievish, calumnious, 
malicious, quarrelsome, depraved, cowards, and ever ailing, devoid of all sense of shame and sin and of fear to seduce the wives of others. Brahmins will live like the Shudras, like the lowest caste, and whilst neglecting their own Sandhya, they will yet officiate of the offices of the low. They will be greedy, given over to wicked and sinful acts, liars, insolent, ignorant, deceitful, mere hangers-on of others, the sellers of their daughters, degraded, averse to all tapas and practice. They will be heretics, imposters, and think themselves wise. They will be without faith or devotion. That's the decadence of the spiritual class. Here you can speak about the spiritual teachers themselves. They will be without faith or devotion and will do japa and puja with no other end than to dupe the people. They will eat unclean food and follow evil customs. They will serve and eat, of course, unclean food at that time would have been, first of all, non-vegetarian. Now, anybody who knows the Indian society of today knows how true that is. They will serve and eat the food of the shudras, of the low castes, and lust of the low women, and will be wicked and ready to barter for money even their own wives to the low. In short, <coughs> the only sun sign that they are brahmanas will be their thread which they wear, observing no rule in eating or drinking or in other matters, Observing some rules in eating and drinking and other matters is keeping some resonance, some purity. But if you don't, then automatically it's failure. Or in other matters, scoffing at the Dharma scriptures, no thought of pious speech ever so much as entering their minds, they will be but bend upon the injury of the good. By you also have been composed for the good and liberation of men, even in Kali Yuga then, the Tantras, a mass of Agamas and Nigamas, which bestow both enjoyment and liberation. That's the difference. The Tantras allow even enjoyment together with liberation. Boga and Yoga, Mukti and Bukti, containing mantras and yantras and rules as to the sadhana of both Devis and Devas. By thee too have been described many forms of niyasa, such as those called shrishti, stiti, and sanghara. By you again have been described various sacred positions of yoga, such as that of the tide and loosened lotus, such as bada padmasana and simple padmasana. The pashu, vira, and divya classes of man, as also the devata, who gives the success in the use of each of the mantras. <coughs> and yet again, it is you who has made known in a thousand ways rites related to the worship with woman, like the sexual part of Tantra, and the rites which are done with the use of skulls, a corpse, or when seated on a funeral pyre. They are tantric directions where people do the Shava Sadhana, like a meditating on a corpse, on an actual corpse. By you too have been forbidden both Pashubhava and Divya Bhava. In this age, the Pashubhava cannot exist. How can there be Divya Bhava? That's one of the curses of Kali Yuga, that Divya Bhava is extremely rare. For example, it is said in the mystical literature <coughs> that Jesus being born out of immaculate conception or Ramakrishna Paramahamsa being of the mystical degree of which he was, and most probably an avatara himself, 
they were divya type of persons. They were from the third category, the divine category. For when they took Ramakrishna to a brothel to give him some women because his family thought that he is crazy because he didn't ejaculate. His, when the prostitute showed herself in front of him and took off her clothes, Ramakrishna's penis shrunk so much that it went inside his pubis. It simply withdrew inside the body. Like Ramakrishna could not conceive of sex with a prostitute. You can say, but he could have done tantric sex. Yes, even then. A vira would have done that. But Ramakrishna was not even a vira. Ramakrishna was more than a vira. Ramakrishna was a divya, the third category, which Tantra say, as Parvati says here, then, you know, we don't want Pashu Baba because Pashu means cattle. We don't want people who are animal, animalistic people are of no use in Tantra and Yoga. Or if they are animalistic, they have to change in a six month, in a year, in two, in three. They have to learn to control their mind. They have to learn to control their senses. They have to learn to control themselves because otherwise they remain pashus, they remain cattle, and they cannot stand up. You cannot become a Buddha when you are pashu, when you are cattle. A cattle is not worthy to receive that gift. A pashu necessarily must transform. And the next step of transformation is vira. Vira means heroic, both for men and for women. The women who practiced spirituality, they have always had something heroic. Sometimes more opposition was given by the society to women who tried to practice spirituality. And those women had to stand tall. They had to really stand strong and stand their ground when pressure was exerted upon them, such as Laleshvari, such as Mirabai, such as Sarada Devi, such as Maananda Mai and others, those women were viras. They were not viras in the sense of manly, but they were viras in the meaning that they were not ruled by fear, by petty thinking. They were women living according to a great ideal. So Mahanirvana Tantra says, we can't have Pashus, going up in the spirituality, so they will have to change. The viras are the salt of the earth, this vira temperament, and unfortunately, divya does not exist. The fact that you have a Padmasambhava here, and the Ramakrishna there, and the Jesus there, these are one person in 500 years on the face of the earth, who is like that. And because of that, that's why, Shakti is correct, like let's not dream about Divya Bhava because it's just matter of stuff of legend. Let's not accept Pashu Bhava because that is animalistic and inferior. Therefore, what is left is clear. The path of the yoga and of the tantric yogi is the Vira Bhava. It is the heroic type of practitioner. In Kali Yuga, every spiritual person has to be a bit heroic. I did a lecture in the last season about the status of the spiritual practitioner in Kali Yuga. And if it is uploaded up there, please go and listen to it. It's very important because spiritual practice in Kali Yuga is something else than in other Yugas. In Kali Yuga, you as a spiritual practitioner are at odds with the rest of the world. The world is not happy about spiritual practitioners. If Jesus is coming and saying, aren't you a hypocrite? Aren't you a hypocrite? Or isn't he a hypocrite? Isn't she a hypocrite? Everybody gets angry, although Jesus is perfectly right. 
But precisely because he is right, people say, blasphemer, crucify him. He works with the devil. Why the devil works through him? Because he tells the truth. He tells embarrassing, inconvenient truths. That's why, uh, again, I'm saying in Kali Yuga, the rules of spirituality are not as they once upon a time were when sages were worshipped and treated with respect and so on. Today, if you are wise, it was a great poet who said that wisdom is madness for the normal people. Sounds like madness. And madness is made to sound like wisdom. That's why uh, Kali Yuga gives us a a special status. And uh, many of you, I know many people who chickened out of yoga and spirituality. One factor was this, because there are many people who want to be constantly acknowledged. But be at ease, people did not acknowledge Rumi and Shams al-Tabriz. People did not acknowledge the Prophet Muhammad most of the time. People did not acknowledge Jesus. People did not acknowledge Peter and Paul. Peter did not, people did not acknowledge Milarepa. People did not acknowledge Ramakrishna. We do, because we are of the same breed with them. I do, because they are my spiritual heroes. And I think everybody should be like them. But in Bengal, where Ramakrishna lived, the Marxists of Bengal, they say that Ramakrishna was schizophrenic and homosexual, and he was just a fiasco and a total fake. That's what they say about Ramakrishna. So Ramakrishna was not admired by his contemporaries, and he was not admired, he's not admired 150 years later. Like many people dislike Ramakrishna. And many, many, I've known European people. I saw the photo of Ramakrishna. My first reaction when my teacher showed me, this is the famous Ramakrishna, showed me a photo. I looked and I said, this guy looks like my grandpa. You know, he looks like a peasant. He looks like a farmer. Like, what's so big about this guy? And my teacher was patient with me and he said, you didn't look well. He said, look again. Keep looking until you start feeling something. Try to connect empathically, energetically, telepathically with this man. See who he really is. No, like, because he has a great fame. He cannot have this great fame just for nothing. Then when I read about Ramakrishna and I started understanding who he was, then I got goosebumps. Then I started valuing Ramakrishna. So that's why I'm saying in the Iron Age... I've known many people who came to yoga. They said it's beautiful. I would like to reach salvation or liberation. But if you are telling me that 90% of the world population is going to look at me like I'm an eccentric outsider and an outcast and a weirdo, then uh, I like too much my Facebook account and I like to have too many likes on my Facebook account and I wouldn't want people to throw rotten tomatoes at me. Like there are people who would give up their quest for God simply because the world is Vadistanistic and twisted. And then people will have to choose between being okay with their fellow man or seeking for God. In Kali Yuga, the society doesn't like this kind of thing. And people who do it seriously, they are sometimes termed as fanatics, fundamentalists, extremists, too much, this and that. And that is typical for the Kali Yuga. 
That's why this Kali Yuga practice, the Vira practice, is a very important thing to understand and to understand the context. Because many people have this. They say, Swami, if you teach yoga and you say that yoga can do a million good things, it can heal cancer, it can make you a better lover and a better citizen and a better employee or employer. If you say that yoga can open your third eye so you can start seeing auras and energies, and if you say that yoga can even open your crown chakra and give uh, spiritual realization then why isn't everybody falling over their back because of yoga? Like, why isn't it on the first page of Washington Post? Why isn't it the most famous and lovely thing in this world? And everybody has words of praise for it. Because we are in Kali Yuga. And in Kali Yuga, the devil is the master, not the devas and the positive, the higher spirits. And that's why... You will have to know, every spiritual practitioner gets to hear this. Only very, very uninspired teachers don't tell to their pupils what the name of the game is. Like when you come to spirituality, you are putting yourself into a certain category in this world. And it's, you have to assume that kind of thing or else you'll be surprised. People will start being nasty to you and you'll say, why? Why does all this happen to me? All this happens to you because you are spiritual. When the Jews at the time of Moses produced their great... Of course, it came from Abraham and others. But anyway, at the time of Moses, when the Jews were so much better than the Egyptians, the Egyptians hated the Jews. They feared them because the Jews were monotheistic and they were one step above any religious thing which was happening around them in that area at that time. And it was so difficult to maintain this monotheism that it was enough for Moses to go on Mount Sinai for 40 days. And when he came back, the idiots were worshipping a calf made of gold. Like they couldn't resist even 40 days. It was all on the shoulders of Moses. Without Moses, the Jews would fall in entropy. They would go into Huvabohu. They would go into the outer darkness. They would go into chaos. They would start worshipping deities and idols. It all depended on one man. There was one man there who had so much aspiration and clairvoyance and spirit as for a whole nation. The whole heirs of a nation depended on one man. This man was holding the faith of it and he just left for 40 days. They lost the faith immediately. That's why I'm saying that uh, when somebody is coming with something superior, the reaction in Kali Yuga is not like, wow, here is something superior, let's do it. No. The reaction in Kali Yuga is kill the bastard. So if you come with a yogic cure for cancer, which already exists, but if you try to make it public, the funny thing is that people won't love you for it. The world will declare you an imposter, a snake oil doctor, a charlatan, and will try to bring you down. That's the nature of Kali Yuga. And we who have done spirituality for a number of years, we know it. We see it. We read history. We have seen it happening for the last 3,000 years. And therefore we know the name of the game. There are people who say, but why Swami? Why is it like this? You are quarreling with God, my dears. You are arguing with God. And it will, you will receive no answer to that stupid question. It is like this because it is Kali Yuga and it is like this. You are asking me, why is it cold in the winter? Stop 
being cold in the winter. Okay, not in Kopangan, we are blessed here. But go back to whatever you came from and it's most probably cold in the winter. No? Why is it cold in the winter? That's a childish, spoiled, silly question. Because you can't change that the wind won't be cold in the winter anymore because that's the way nature goes. It's exactly the same with Kali Yuga. Kali Yuga is Kali Yuga is Kali Yuga. And therefore, there's nothing to change about it. You have to learn from the lessons of our predecessors or simply bump your head against the wall hard until you will learn out of pain and out of unpleasant experiences. <coughs> and she gives some examples about how the rituals will not work about how different rituals will not work. I'm not reading that because it's not of the essence for tonight's lecture. But since the men of Kali age are full of greed, lust, gluttony, they will, on that account, neglect sadhana, the spiritual practice, and will fall into sin, and having drunk much wine for the sake of the pleasure of the senses, will become mad with intoxication, and bereft of all notion of right and wrong. Some will violate the wives of others, others will become rogues, and some in the indiscriminating rage of lust will go wherever she be with any woman. Overeating and drinking will disease many and deprive them of strength and sense. Disordered by madness, they will meet death falling into lakes, pits, or in impenetrable forests, or from hills or housetops. See, in, just take this little statement. Disordered by madness, they will meet death falling into lakes, pits, or impenetrable forests, or from hills or housetops. Mahanirvana Tantra considers that accidental death is just sign of sin. It's bad karma. It's a disharmony. No? Like you have like a guy in the movie 127 who got caught his arm with a boulder and eventually had to cut off his own arm and then they made a Hollywood movie like he was a hero. He was a pain in the ass. He was a jerk. He was an idiot, according to Mahanirvana Tantra. And they had to send a helicopter to pick him up, like he was some great wounded in a war. He was an idiot who couldn't stay home. He was, as Mahanirvana Tantra says, disordered by madness. Who wants to go in a canyon in Colorado or wherever to get caught like an idiot, you know, like this? Like, why can't you stay home and do your meditation? Why do you have to have a chili up your ass to go and fall in a canyon in Colorado or wherever it was? No, this is according to Mahanirvana Tantra. These are people who have no peace. These are people who cannot find happiness and peace in their own home. And they just think that if they bike 120 kilometers or if they do something, this is going to make them happy. But this is just disorder of the senses, says Mahanirvana. It's, it's, not, it's not being in your full senses. While some will be as mute as corpses, others will be forever on the chatter. And yet others will quarrel with their kinsmen and elders. They will be evildoers, cruel and destroyers of Dharma. I fear, Lord, says Parvati, that even that which he has ordained for the good of man will through them turn, turn out for evil eventually. O Lord of the world, who will practice yoga or niyasa? Who will sing the hymns and draw the yantras and make the purashcharana parts of the rituals? 
Under the influence of the Kali age, man will of his nature become indeed wicked and bound to all manner of sin. Say, O Lord of the distressed, in your mercy, how without great pains man may obtain still longevity, health and energy, increase of strength and courage, learning, intelligence and happiness, and how they may become great in strength and valor, pure of heart, obedient to their parents, not seeking the love of others as wives, but devoted to their own, mindful of the good of their neighbor, reverent to the devas and to their gurus, cherishers of their children and kinsmen, possessing the knowledge of Brahman, learn it in the lore of and ever meditating on the Brahman. Say, O Lord, for the good of the world, what men should or should not do according to their different castes and stages of life, for who but you is their protector in all the three worlds. This great tirad by Parvati, by the Shakti, of course it shows you many things, like when you start putting, if any one of you would bother taking that paragraph, you can find it, the book is copyright free, because it was translated more than 70 years ago, so you can find it as open source, as free domain on the internet, and you don't even need to buy there for this book. Of course, you can buy a translation of it if you want to have it in hard copy. And then when you have, no, when you go through such a book, you are going to see that the people who write this, whoever wrote this 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 years ago, were people who were very staunch traditionalists. Today, pejoratively, the atheist bankers that run this world, they are condemning all the time the people of religion, calling them fundamentalists. We definitely have fundamentalistic Christians who threaten to blow up the government of America and others, and we definitely have fundamentalistic Islamics who are really, really bad guys today, and there might be some other fundamentalistic Jews or Buddhists or some others, Sikhs or some others, who may be nasty in their own ways, but uh, these people forget a very simple truth. There exist some people who don't belong explicitly to any of these religions, and they are still fundamentalistic. But they are fundamentalistic spiritualists. They are spiritual fundamentalists, not Christian not Islamic, just generally speaking, spiritual. Because spirituality is in a disastrous state in Kali Yuga, and especially the last 250 years, 300 years, have been terrible from this standpoint. And because of this, we are witnessing um, the fact that some people still look at the fundamentals. They say all the folklore, all the fairy tales, all the proverbs, all the wisdom, all the social experience, what either it was the caste system of India or the social system of Japan or the feudal Europe and so on, they were coming from a wisdom. Like people used to look at what's happening and draw a conclusion. If I do this and this, then that will happen. Then I better adjust my behavior and so on and so forth. And that's why it is a very, very funny thing that very often people who are spiritual and people who would write things like this, some of the ultra-left-wing type of people, the arty kind of people, 
who think that we are going into something very brilliant and experience shows we are not, they all the time look back on spirituality and they are a bit afraid of spirituality because you heard here that people have to be faithful to their family and children and parents and so on. And it's like, this sounds like medieval crap. This sounds like middle age crap. You know, it's like if, if somebody would have the power to empower this one to set this into action, then they would cut alcohol, which the Americans tried to do during the prohibition, and then they said it doesn't actually work. They would try to cut the drugs, they would try to cut this, they would try to cut that, and so on, and people would say that's like ultra-right-wing, conservative, fundamentalistic type of thing, because it basically glorifies something which was ideal long time ago. Like long time ago, people knew their place, and people did their spiritual things. And of course, there were assholes here and there, but they were properly sanctioned by the society. And therefore, it's like we are looking like, can we revive some old-time society? You know, like whatever, whichever examples we can give on the face of this earth. The funny thing is that yogis and spiritual people like Ramakrishna was an example of this. They knew it isn't possible. Ramakrishna believed very staunchly in the traditional values of Hinduism. And yet, Ramakrishna went and watched movies when the British brought movies in Calcutta. And Ramakrishna went and worshipped the prostitutes from the red light district. And Ramakrishna made a lot of friendships and spiritual education with people from very different environments. He was very progressive, very innovative. And people were wondering, you know, like, Ramakrishna in a certain way is a typical example of a very great spirit stranded in Kali Yuga. A very great spirit who became a divya, who became like a divine young man, was living in the 19th century Bengal. And the 19th century Bengal was deeply corrupted by lots of social flaws at that time, some of them brought by the invaders of India, some of them festering in India itself because of the lack of faith and devotion and egocentrism of many people there. And therefore, Ramakrishna is an example of the spiritual practitioner in Kali Yuga. No, like It was Ramakrishna against the rest of the world. Exactly as Moses 3,000 years ago, it was Moses against the rest of the world because his own countrymen believed him only if he made some miracle or something. But otherwise, as soon as he left them alone, he crossed them over the Red Sea or Dead Sea or whatever it was. And then after 40 days, they were worshipping a, a golden calf. So what I'm trying to say here is, in the same way as Moses... Ramakrishna, three millennia later, he was one man against his age. Everybody was decadent and falling apart. And Ramakrishna, because he was connected here with the divine, then Ramakrishna was bringing spirit, was filtering spirit. And he was by himself holding the tide. Ramakrishna is called today the reviver of the modern Hinduism. In 1850, Hinduism was falling apart. 
when compared with the British, compared with the Portuguese, compared with the Islam, compared with everything else, Hinduism seemed so chaotic and so much of a non-efficient losing lot to draw. And Ramakrishna revived it. A tidal wave of new Hinduism started with Ramakrishna and Vivekananda and the other disciples and at the same time with gurus who came in the world a few years later on the same tidal wave such as the lineage of Yogananda, Lahiri Mahasaya, Yushri Yukteswar, such as uh, Ramana Maharishi, such as the interest which was revived and produced by the Theosophical Society and all the gurus which were highlighted by that and so on. It all started from a man. When you look historically, you will see that it was Ramakrishna who turned that tide. A man against an epoch, but a man having so much faith, so much purity. And that's why it's not that Ramakrishna turned it back. Many people, when they hear these kinds of things, they are a little bit turned off by spirituality. Because when we talk about the golden age or when we talk about the good old times, many people say, yeah, but there were many things in the good old times which I wouldn't like to have today because I like my freedom and I like this and I like that. Uh, People always think in terms of their ego and their personal liberties rather than in terms of a metaphysical judgment. That's why it is important to understand properly uh, the following fact that, for example, we often decry, no, like it's one of the typical things that we decry the relationship between men and women. How does the relationship, how did it become in the modern world? And even when we teach Tantra, it is so difficult to uproot this from people's minds. Like people come and they pretend that they want to study Tantra and actually when they start having relationships, they start having bourgeois, selfish, egocentric relationships. And then they wonder, why do I suffer? Why doesn't it work? It's like, are you really looking for God? Are you really doing this like an act of God? Or is this just a manifestation like you found a way to bypass the problem and now You are just trying under the name and the excuse of Tantra to just push your agenda, your selfish agenda, and just do some personal things there. This is very important when you look at it from the standpoint of the modern yoga. Because the modern yoga knows one thing for sure. Unless a comet hits the earth and the third world war ensues and we turn back to Stone Age, and to 100,000 people surviving on the face of this earth, somewhere in the mountains, and we get a brave new world starting from the ashes and the ruins of what is today, unless this is happening, we are never going to see things like what happened 2,000 years ago, or 1,000 years ago in various, not to mention 20,000 years ago, in various cultures and civilizations. And because of that, The yogis know that the way is always forward. It's exactly like you'd be on a roller coaster and the roller coaster starts plummeting and then you are trying to pull it back. You are trying to dig your heels into the iron cage and simply say, no, 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 it's falling too much. There's no way to stop a roller coaster once it starts plummeting. The only way to do is to go all the way and bounce on the opposite side. It's possible to bounce. 
That's what I've been taught by some of my teachers, that the society is not going to go back to what it was. Spirituality, nevertheless, is inherent and inevitable. And as soon as Kali Yuga will diminish, spirituality will come back. In some forms, it already starts coming back. Because the transition between the yugas is not happening one day. I gave you the analogy with the seasons. When the winter is ending, the spring is coming. And the first sign of the spring is that beautiful bell-like little white flower that people pick up in the beginning of March. In some patch where the snow has melted, suddenly there is this beautiful darling little flower. And that's the symbol of the spring. Like spring is not coming once of a sudden. First there comes a sweet little flower. Then the ice keeps melting. Then the grass still starts sprouting. Flowers start appearing. Like it's a process which takes a month, a month and a half. Two months when you go from the barren land of winter to the green, flush aspect of spring. When spring is in its fullness. And then the trees go in blossom and all the rest. Which simply means... Going in between the yugas, don't think that the yuga is going to be over on the 7th of November 2025 and then the next yuga will come full on the next day. It's like you move from winter to spring. Are there spring-like days in February, and I'm meaning in the northern hemisphere uh, because most of us refer to that. Uh, Are there spring days happening before the calendaristic spring starts? Yes. Some years we have a very early spring. Are there years when it's later? Yes. And therefore there is a transition. Many of the metaphysicians have said the fact that people on earth in the last hundred years, they started growing in stature, like people become taller and taller. The fact that people start living longer relatively and other such signs, including some aspects in which modern spirituality is coming and it's becoming more accessible, like to hear these kinds of things, and especially the practical secrets of yoga and so on, in the old days, you really had to make titanic efforts, and there were a few people only who could give you that. Today, many of you come at Agama and just take the first level, and there we teach you how it is with the resonance, with the chakras, with the energy, with dominant chakras, with teach you a lot of things, like in one month you get an invaluable package of knowledge and practically how to do things. Of course, not all of yoga, because you can't teach all of yoga in four weeks, but you have a good, very good package to start with there, and people consider it like, oh, okay, yeah, that's interesting. you You do not, you lack the perspective, that's not interesting. That's things for which people were ready to travel half of the world around, and to make great, great sacrifices a thousand years ago only to get this kind of knowledge. So this kind of knowledge is now given digitally on paper. We are recording things and uploading them. And people can get a lot of this information. And for people, it sounds like it's easy. It's not easy. This is a characteristic typically of Kali Yuga. Because in Kali Yuga, it is known that distraction is so big. And very few people find the aspiration, the longing to really sacrifice a bit of their spare time and say, look, I want to do some spirituality. My life cannot be without spirituality. I really need to look into this. And because it has become so difficult, it was much easier in Tibet 
a thousand years ago because there was no internet and internet cafes and discos and clubs and people were dying at the age of 37 averagely like tibetan life sucked very much and therefore to go in a monastery was almost like a blessing for some tibetans and to do meditation so uh, because in kali yuga especially in the modern times it's not like this the divine consciousness and impelled by it shambhala itself has created facilities like today Spirituality is coming to the limited numbers that really want it. Spirituality is coming much, much easier. Any one of you would have lived in the 15th century in Tibet or in India and you would have searched for a guru to teach you such things, you would have had to search and you would have had to sweat blood. Like that guru would have been very hard to find and when finally you found such a guru, he or she would have taken you through the meat grinder for years before sharing to you this, because others were the conditions of spirituality in those days. So today, we are talking about the fact that the yogis know that the rules of the game are changing, that we are in a very funny part, funny in inverted commas, of the, of the big game, and the roller coaster is plummeting big time, and sooner or later it's going to bounce back, and then you have to be prepared to bounce back with whatever comes from there. Today, even scientific research in parapsychology, in progressive medical research, is demonstrating things which yoga, in quantum mechanics and many others, is demonstrating things which the yogis and tantrics said thousands of years ago. And we are getting a new breath in a lot of these things about spirituality and yoga. And that's why we know that even with science, which promoted itself as anti-religious, nevertheless now many things in science are actually promoting spirituality and supporting spirituality. And I'm saying this for a very simple reason. I'm saying this because the way out of this impasse of Kali Yuga is not back. I'm not talking to you here as I am a nostalgic of the medieval times or of the Vedic society. It's true that the Vedic society, the traditional society, has distilled human wisdom for thousands of years. And they have found ways to live harmoniously with the nature, with each other, with themselves, according to this folklore, according to this down-to-earth experience, according to this common sense which simple people have, and they can choose some things uh, for their wisdom. But we all know in spirituality, and you should know, that it's not my effort here to hold the roller coaster back. The roller coaster is going forward. I remember a very illustrative example from which you can learn. I was going with my first yoga teacher when I was young in Romania, and already in the last years of communism, while the early communism in Eastern Europe had been quite uh, idealistic, and many people started from this, that everybody will have everything and it was going to be a brave, wonderful new world. And then in the last years, in the last decades of communism, at least in the country where I was, people became very manipulating and very cheating and very selfish. And there was bribe and there was corruption and there was nepotism. And there were a lot of ugly things which made that the ideal which the first communists may have had, it was buried long time ago. And so I'm going with my 
yoga teacher from that time, and we go into a van. There were like mini buses running through town. And one of the corruption things which was happening among thousands of others is that the driver at the minivan, he was trying not to give you a ticket. He was just trying to pocket the money and just sell like half of the tickets and half of the money to have them like black money. No, like he was basically embezzling half of the money by not giving you the piece of, like he said, do you need a ticket? No, and so on. And this teacher which was with me, he was my elder at that time, this teacher who was with me, he gave the bribe. He went for the bribe. He just took the guys and he said, I don't need the ticket. And I was like, you know, we learned about Asteya and uh, Satyam and all these things. And here is my teacher in yoga promoting implicitly an act of corruption, like giving black money to a bus driver and so on. And I asked him, like, how does this fit with your ideal for a better world? For, a, no, like, aren't you wanting that everybody should be honest and do their job honestly and so on? And he simply said, look around. You're never going to turn it back that way. You're never being able to pull it back. Only with draconian measures which people will resent. So he said, this is exactly like a roller coaster. If it started flowing, if it started going down, it's much better to accelerate its flowing down so that it bounces faster on the opposite slope. Therefore, he said, I prefer to promote corruption because more corruption will destroy the, will destroy the communism faster. If I'm an honest person, I'm actually sustaining communism. But he said, I don't like communism. It's my interest that the communists should fall apart. And therefore, I'm interested in giving more corruption because this will topple the communism faster. Exactly in the same way, when you think about the restoration of the spiritual values in the society, you have to think about this. No, like, will the society turn back with... Uh, responsible men and virtuous chaste women and kings which are uh, holding their engagements and things like where will that happen no after watching sex and the city and whatever else we are watching around when will that happen never people will consider it like you are taking away their freedoms so basically the world is rotting well then you can help it rot a bit faster so we, we jump on the opposite side of the slope because we are in a waiting phase. We all know that those who are spiritual and who want to live by yama and niyama, who want to live in a vertical way, we all know that this is not the world which we are looking for. This is not it. You know, It's like, what are we talking about? No, this world is a fake world ruled by rich worldwide bankers and by an invisible elite of the world which transforms everything in a global village of slaves and servants and is like this is definitely not the satya yuga this is definitely not the world described by the great sages so how are we going to get there no if there is a boil if there is a big pimple on the face of this world let's burst it open no like, let's make that boil grow a little bit more and then it will explode and then we can follow with what comes next. Therefore, uh, I as a yogi have been taught by many of my teachers that things are never going back. 
History doesn't repeat itself identically. Again, maybe in cosmic cycles, maybe by mutations of the crust of the earth, as I said last week or something, there may be some disastrous thing which pushes the human history in some cycles of civilization and not. That's not the point because we are not looking for that. But the point being that actually you are seeing that in civilization, like for example, many people say would say, Swami, how does the tantric sex fit with that? Because Paul, the apostle of Christ, says in the Bible, in one of the letters, Paul writes to the communities of Christians in that time, the first Christians of history. And he says, you are asking me about to have sexual life or not. And he says, if it were according to me, I would say that you should stay like me. At that time, he was celibate. He had become celibate and he remained celibate till the end of his life. And he said, if you ask me about this, my advice is try to follow, be like me. But the Lord, which means Jesus, because he knows what you can and what you can't do, he realizes that this is not really possible. And therefore, he simply tells me to tell you that from now on, you should cultivate monogamous marriages and all this. The Christian institution of marriage as it has appeared. The, in, the Christian institution of marriage is given by Paul in the Bible as an alternative to celibacy. It would be better to be celibate, but if you are not celibate, then you might have lots of sexual fun. Then you are in sex in the city. Then you are going around and having sex every day, every night, and so on. That is, according to the standards of Paul, that is fornication. It's simply too much sex. That is debauchery. It's libertinism. It's way too much. And then if you have a single family, everybody knows that the oxytocin runs out after four years and very few couples keep having steamy, abundant, juicy sex after four years of a relationship. By the nature of things, the minds of men and women are programmed that a romance should take about three years and a half, four. And if you don't have children until that time, you should change partner and try to sow your wild oats somewhere else because this relationship is not serving the purpose of the species, which is reproduction, which is uh, to have progeny. And therefore, what I'm trying to say here Many people will say, Swami, then how does the tantric teachings fit with that? Like Paul and many of the Christian mystics, Augustine and tons of others, they say the best thing is virginity. The best thing is chastity. And you are coming with tantra and you are apparently are teaching the opposite. Because by teaching the tantric sexuality, you are teaching people that they can have sex three times per day. And if, should they choose so, they can do it also with multiple partners. And therefore, it's like... it's. It's like hippie group sex or whatever, you know. Like, how is that going to lead to the Christian ideal of Paul? The idea is, we'll never turn back there. Humanity is never retracing its steps and goes back. History doesn't go back. There is a way of reaching true celibacy, brahmacharya. We have to go through this valley. And tantric sex is, since we became a world which is so sexed up, then let's use sex as a vehicle for that. Then sex itself can become the instrument for transformation. So we take the sexual function, we use it, but we use it in a very special way with brahmacharya, with continence, 
and then automatically this is going to give, it is going to regenerate spirituality. There is spirituality through non-chastity or non-celibacy, like that. But then it has to be done according to the rules of that new game. I was looking here, you know, when I was looking at the typical tests, just to illustrate this, because I don't have time to go into this, that just to take this example with Tantra, because many people think, how is Tantra convergent with the great mystical traditions of Christianity, or what Buddha said, and so on. But when we look upon it, you know, like what is Tantra about? What are the tantric relationships about? And the tantric relationships are meant to attain love. We see many, many people in Tantra who get stuck in their Svadhisthana. They get stuck in their lower chakras. And for them, the whole definition of Tantra is just abundant sex. But what about love? Love, for example, has tears. As not I say it. It was said by Jesus. It was said by Paul. It was said by whatever his name, uh, that uh, zealot from the Bible. It was said by Kahlil Gibran. It was said by Rumi. Lots of mystics have shown to us that love, like many people are coming to yoga or to tantra, it's like it's a sort of a feel-good. There exists a levity in this world that everybody thinks that yoga tantra is meant to make you feel good. It's not. Jesus said, don't think that I came to bring peace in the world, for I came to bring a sword. And indeed, because of Christianity, how much strife was in the Jewish land, in the Roman Empire, in many, many other parts of the world, how much strife it was. One of the apostles of Christ went to India, Thomas, and he got assassinated, he got stabbed, he got killed. He, he's also a martyr. Even in India, the message of Christ given by Thomas, who was an elevated spiritualist, it didn't sound good. It's still, it's Kali Yuga, and Thomas got assassinated by preaching the message of the Christ in India itself, which is at that time, 2,000 years ago. So love is not always a happy, superficial thing. Love is something which gives tears. And Kahlil Gibran says, if you don't accept those tears... You are a fool because you will never understand the nature of reality and the nature of love. Like nobody is running away from tears. In love there is pain and that pain makes us blossom. That pain makes us learn and grow up. That's why you know, we, speak, we speak about Tantra but many people coming to Tantra thinking that we are just offering some free sex community. But we are offering tears. Lots of tears, because there is love. And if you reach to love, then there is going to be some fundamental, some fundamental questions are going to arise. The tantric relationships are meant to attain the realization of the true self by diminishing the ego, the pride, the respect, the self-respect, the vanity. Like one has to sacrifice oneself. We see many people who think that tantra is just about glorifying yourself. But the real Tantra is a Tantra which destroys the ego. And we are the ego 90% when we come to yoga. And because of this, a lot of the things that we puff up ourselves with, they have to be taken down mercilessly by our spiritual practice. That's why, again, Tantra 
is not a feel-good discipline. It's because it's not created for that. The tantric relationships are meant to create spiritual evolution. Therefore, we always ask ourselves, how can a relationship support spirituality? Like, do you invest? Are you actually growing up spiritually, helping the other person to grow? What are uh, the characteristics of a relationship that can call itself spiritual? Like people in relationships say, you don't show me respect. If you show me respect, does this make me grow up spiritually? No, this definitely makes my ego grow up because you make me feel good. So actually a tantric relationship is not based on respect. It's sometimes based on squashing each other's ego when you see it growing too much. Therefore, it's again, it's not for feeling good. How do we actually create a relationship which makes the human being grow? The tantric relationships are meant to lead to transfiguration. As men and women are getting old together, they start seeing more each other's defects and flaws. And they know how to push each other's sore spots and buttons instead of transfiguring. More and more, you are a Shakti. More and more, I am a Shiva. More and more, yes, despite the fact that I'm getting old and I'm pissing in my trousers because my prostate is not what it used to be. That doesn't mean, no, if you focus on my dripping prostate, then you are not transfiguring. If you are focusing on the fact that I start getting Alzheimer's and I forget things, that's not transfiguration. The question is, how can you have a love which pushes the other person into transfiguration, not into anti-transfiguration? The tantric relationships are meant to create oneness. But when you see people that have been in normal relationships a lot, you see anything but not oneness. The relationship between a man and a woman in Tantra ultimately has a divine archetype, Shiva and Shakti. Therefore, the question is, the archetype is like a model that guides us. Even Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is. In Tantra we say, be perfect as Shiva and Shakti are. A tantric, a spiritual relationship would be based on compassion. And I see people who are very interested in each other one moment, and five years later they are not compassionate to each other. They drill exactly in the painful points of the other person for the purpose of manipulation and inflation of their own ego because they want to be right. They want to be in charge. They want to do this or they want to do that. But where is actually the compassion? The other person... So I'm giving this example with Tantra. I took it specially and I can give other examples. Now let's look at the discipleship in yoga. Just to show the decadence, the, to show this, the terrible situation which exists in Kali Yuga. From Kularnava Tantra. It's again Shiva talking to Shakti who had asked something. And she had asked, which, how is a true disciple in yoga? Like who reaches enlightenment? And it's very beautiful. That's in Kularnava Tantra, in another tantric text. Lord Shiva said, O noble mistress, a good disciple should be endowed with auspicious characteristics, qualified for the practice of ecstasy, possessed of virtuous behavior. Like Shiva says, first of all, there are some signs which you see on the body. There are some characteristics, no? which 
gurus usually identified, qualified for the practice of ecstasy. Let me give a simple example, which may be politically incorrect, but it's the most simple to see. If I get or some guru gets a disciple and that disciple is sick with a Down syndrome, as much compassion as we have, it's 99% impossible to make that disciple reach a state of ecstasy in this body with his brain. Because the brain is damaged from birth and the body which contains such a powerful genetical damage is not fully characteristic to the state of ecstasy. And because of that, uh, first Shiva says there are some characteristics. And then he continues describing the perfect disciple. Clean in body and garment. Clean. No? Wise. You can analyze how many of them are like, are you clean in body and garment tonight? No? Like Kularnavatantra says, clean in body and garment. Wise. Just. Pure-minded, steady in his vows, of good conduct, possessed of faith and devotion, skillful, eating sparsely, thinking deeply, serving honestly, acting maturely, heroic, free from mental poverty, very interesting, free from mental poverty, that some people create poverty with their own minds, they have a resonance of poverty in their own minds, very skillful in all actions, pure, helpful to all, grateful, fearful of sin, fearful of sin. It's very unmodern to have that. Fearful of sin, the real disciple. Frequently virtuous ascetics, thoughtful, honoring tradition, practicing generosity, dedicated to the welfare of all beings, equipped with trust and discipline, not deceitful about wealth, body, and so on, accomplishing the impossible, brave, endowed with strength and energy, well-disposed, oriented toward action, attentive, discerning, speaking moderately and with a smile what is good and true, free from blemishes, capable of grasping what is said to him, dexterous, of broad understanding, indifferent to praise, but open, O beloved, to criticism from others, with his senses mastered, well-contended, intelligent, chaste, as well as free from worry, sickness, instability, suffering, delusion, and doubt. These are the characteristics of a disciple according to the tradition. No? When you put it on it, if I put it on myself how I was when I was a disciple, I definitely don't qualify for many of these. I feel inferior. I feel ashamed to be compared with such a standard. And yet, this, these are the standards of the tradition. And therefore, we are going to yoga in Kali Yuga with a lot of grace. With a lot like you receive knowledge about the chakras and mantras and things. Although you don't follow this list of requirements, to a certain extent at least. And still, the knowledge is given. That's why I'm, I'm saying so many things about, I said about relationships, I spoke about uh, discipleship and so on, because in Kali Yuga, the rules of the game are very different. To be a spiritual practitioner in Kali Yuga, look up that lecture, because I'm not going through it again, 
um, I defined there about six attitudes which spiritualists can have in Kali Yuga, starting with secrecy, like do spirituality in absolute secrecy, or some of them turning into outlaws, Robin Hood figures, like guerrilla fighters, you know, like the world is not okay, and then you can, you, you do things in your own way. I sympathized very much, by the way, of this spiritualist in Kali Yuga, with the attitudes of controversial teachers like Osho Rajneesh in India, who even refused to pay taxes, got himself into major trouble for this eventually, but he refused to pay taxes because he said Buddhas are exempt from taxes. Buddhas are tax-free. The society of Kali Yuga doesn't do anything for Buddhas. Why should they dare that money which is given from the heart for God should go in the coffers of the Indian government who will manufacture nuclear weapons out of it? It's like, no, why, why should a Buddha pay taxes to an atheistic, secular government who is going to do exactly what you don't want to do. So such people even come sometimes to the attitude that you are a lone wolf type of person and uh, you have to treat the world accordingly. Never forget that Jesus, who spoke so much about love, forgiveness and other things, nevertheless, Jesus was very critical of the world in which he lived and today scholars say, oh, they were Essenes and they were a bunch of weirdos and so on. Whatever the explanation is, Jesus who says, I am God, he says, I and God are one and the same. And he says that in the Gospel of Thomas, which is not censored by the church. So it's kind of, it's a pure statement of Jesus. Either Jesus was megalomanic and should be committed into a mental hospital, or he was a con man. And then he should be put in prison or executed. Or if he was right and who he said he was, then Jesus who says, I'm God. You know, Jesus, when he speaks about this world, he often retorts in a bitter way. And he speaks about the prince of this world. And the prince of this world is a syntag, princeps huius mundi in Latin, in the early Latin Bible. And this is a syntag for the devil. Like Jesus 2,000 years ago says that's why Pontius, Pilate and Herod and the others want to crucify me. Because I come from God and they are ruled by the devil. And actually it's them that have the guns and the money and the power and the weapons. And I am the sacrificial lamb right now. And thus Jesus says don't be distressed. Because he says, this is temporary, it will go after a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, five thousand years. But he calls the devil the prince of this world. So this world is ruled by God, but God has temporarily left it under the jurisdiction of somebody more bitter than that. And that is the devil himself. This is how Jesus illustrates Kali Yuga. He says, Kali Yuga is a time where the devil is the prince of this world and the devil is running the show. The devil is inspiring Pontius Pilate and whoever to have Jesus crucified simply because he is inconvenient. He should be taken out of the game as quick as possible because he is too disturbing. Many people have said, if a guy like Jesus would come right now and stand up, 
he would not resist three years and a half. He will probably be assassinated way before three years and a half. No? Try to think about the simple sexual things which Jesus would say about adultery, homosexuality, and other things. Like, would Jesus survive three years? Like, the world today is much worse than it was in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Much more corrosive. Today, even we who are doing spirituality in various ways, we sometimes have to be politically correct, smile, practice some diplomacy, and sometimes when we really splash it, everybody goes like, ouch, you know, you really splashed it yesterday, Swamiji. But we just follow in the footsteps of people who are fearless, men and women who are totally fearless in speaking their minds and speaking their opinion and doing their things because they were serving a principle, not serving the world as it is because they consider that the world as it is is sick. It is disturbed to a large extent and it's in this roller coaster game. And again, because Tantra is not a wrestling, because Tantra is more like a jujitsu or like an Aikido, it doesn't push back. It pulls forward. Like if the world is so much focused on sex and other things, Tantra says, have a lot of it. Go. Go into overdrive about it, and this will take you to the other shore, if you do it right. But as I quoted to you early about discipleship, about tantric relationships, these things have to be done right. Because if you try to practice judo or aikido and you are a total amateur and a joke, you are going to be pathetic and whatever aikido thing you try, it won't work because you don't really know it, you haven't studied it. So that is why the, the condition of the tantric tradition, here you are in a tantric school and you are practicing tantric yoga under its different forms, the condition is that of course things have to be practiced Properly, If yoga says that Manipura chakra is in the belly button, and it even calls it Nabi chakra, then practicing anything with Manipura in the hollow of the stomach is going to take you to hell, not to paradise. It's like trying to practice Aikido with doing the movements of Aikido wrongly. They have to be done right. Yoga and Tantra work only when they are done perfectly right as they have been taught by the tradition. Nine books out of ten of sexual tantra forget to speak about the fact that men should hold their semen and not ejaculate. Why? Because it scares men away, and men are going to say, come on, this book is written by some fundamentalistic idiot. I want a nice tantra book. By nice, understanding a tantra book which is catering to the masses and to the desires of the person and like don't step over my toes. Don't tell me something which I am afraid to hear or something. That's where it goes. So that's why, um, again, I'm saying there are ways. We are in a roller coaster. We are in a valley. But remember that there are ways out. There is a light in the end of the tunnel. And uh, the general Indian tradition says when you look around, it's Kali Yuga. An enthusiastic Yogananda Paramahamsa, this was probably one of the maximum five or ten mistakes which he did theoretically in his life, 
But Yogananda Paramahamsa inherited from his guru Sri Yukteswar a weird form of Vedic astrology in which they claimed that the humanity had gone into Satya Yuga in 1930-something when Yogananda had a big burp one day. That was the moment when humanity moved to Satya Yuga. Unfortunately, the history of the last 80 years shows that Yogananda was a candid, naive soul in this respect because what happened in the last 80 years and what's happening these days is far, far from being Satya Yuga, both on a social level and on a political level and on an economical level and you name it. And that's why uh, the truth is that when you look at the world with the filter of the tradition, you see that we are in Kali Yuga, you see that we are in a deeper and deeper Kali Yuga. Places like Tibet and other spiritual oases of this planet, they have gone down. No? Now Tibet can be very happy that it has a monorail train which connects it to Beijing and an airport and all sorts of gizmos of the 21st century. But yogis who spend the winter eating sand, they are no more. So it's like, therefore, uh, Tibet has gone, many other places have gone, even reclused places like Bhutan and others, they are slowly, slowly being swallowed up and turned into 21st century things. And the humanity is actually very proud because if we would have a place like Bhutan where people meditate and they don't have television, which they didn't have a few years ago, like the Taliban's from Kabul, then we are we would say that um, you know it's a pity that they are not with us. It's always provocative when somebody says, "I'm not surfing the internet. I'm meditating. I'm not eating everything. I'm a vegetarian or I'm doing a certain diet. I'm not eating today." I'm fasting. These people are like topsy-turvy. They are like the -the jack-in-the-box who is against everybody and people feel irritated. Anybody who used to fast 10 years ago, when they hear that today somebody is fasting and they are no longer having that self-discipline and that willpower, then people get slightly irritated because the person that is fasting is a reminder of how you were 10 years ago and how your spiritual practice was 10 years ago. And it's not making you happy. It's putting you to shame. And that's why, again and again, I'm saying, in Kali Yuga, many values are reversed. And you, those of you who will dare to step, who have enough aspiration to say, I don't care, I still am going to do spirituality. Those of you who are going to do spirituality, you should know from the beginning what you are getting yourselves into. Because you are getting yourself in a very elite league, but this elite league is not valued properly in Kali Yuga. And on the contrary, there is some degree of adversity. How you handle this adversity and how skillfully you can be, you know, living your Robin Hood life or your secret life or other things, that of course depends from case to case. And um, only time will show for each and every one of you, where you are going to place yourselves. I wanted on purpose to conclude, because last week I did not manage to conclude this story about the yugas, and I wanted to conclude it with more concrete, clear facts about Kali Yuga, about the spiritual aspects of it, 
So I feel that now the subject is indeed finished. And uh, that's why um, it is now pretty clear that in the next week after the Mahashivaratri, uh, when I will do my first uh, satsang, there I will continue with Garanda Samhita. I finished right now for January and February. I finished the introductory satsangs which I wanted to do for this season. If you will want continuation of them, those of you who get into the second level of Agama studies, you can always come and ask me more questions about things which I left untold in the Q&A sessions from Tuesdays, which I or advanced teachers here in Agama do. And so we can continue the discussions. This was just opening a few doors. But uh, two weeks from now, because next week is Maha's satsang, and two weeks from now I'm going to continue with the analysis of a great spiritual text called the Geranda Samhita, one of the basic texts of yoga. I will say a few introductory words then, two weeks from now, when I will, uh, because some of you have not been here last season, and uh, it will be a bit abrupt to just go directly into that text. We have finished for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining the satsang. And uh, I'll see you.